Welcome to the Macros for Life podcast, where we talk all things macros, business, and marriage. We're your hosts, Eve and Randall Guzman. Visit our website at www.gtransformationacademy.com, where you can download our free How to Track Macros guide. This guide has helped over 15,000 people start their macro tracking journey. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Macros for Life podcast show. Today we have guest Dr. Mike T. Nelson on the show. He's a research field nutrition and fitness educator and a speaker also, and he's also an extreme human performance specialist. I typically like to think of myself as an extreme uh, athlete, but then I remember I'm 40 years old and I'm not, (laughs) and I'm not, but Dr. Mike, what's going on? How about you talk to the people a little bit, tell them who you are and tell them all about this extreme human performance specialist. Yeah, so I was trying to think of a name for the company. And one of the business guys I worked with years ago, I told him the name was Extreme Human Performance because I've always just been fascinated by what we can learn from performance on the most extremes. And then that generally kind of uh, filters down to everyone else. You can change the scaling of it, but the other way doesn't work. Like you can't be really good with general population and then expect that to work with athletes. So it's kind of an interesting one-way street. And I figured if I can figure out like the extreme ends, then you can kind of collapse it down into the middle. And that's from, a, I don't remember the book, but it was a design principle where if you design like a piece of exercise equipment, right? You guys both use tons of exercise equipment. If you design for the average person, it only really works for the average size person. But if you design it for the extremes, the shortest person and the tallest human, then everybody in between, it, it's going to work okay for. So I just like that concept. And I thought, eh, it's a cool business name. I'll just do that. <laughs> he told me it was a horrible idea. He's like, nah, no one really wants that. No one wants extreme. No one wants to do all the crazy stuff. But I'm like, eh, I don't know. That's what I'm interested in. So screw it. <laughs> I like it. It's definitely catchy. It's definitely catchy. Yeah, when I saw that you had added us on to your calendar once we got booked, I was like, wait a minute. When Who I saw your email, I was like, <laughs> is this like an alter ego? I was like, what's going on here? I was like, we have to find out today what this is all about. But I mean, I think I look at us, the three of us as people that don't always take the ordinary path. So for yeah. you to pick that, I think it falls like right in line. Yeah, and I also like, you know, extreme metal and doing weird stuff like kiteboarding and try to jump 20 feet in the air and land 150 feet away and hopefully uh land okay and i get dropped out of the sky like a sack of potatoes <laughs> <laughs> that's push it to the limit right <laughs> yeah yeah it, you know you know it's it's fun i mean obviously there's pros that do you know well well um beyond that but it's yeah being able to i think everybody wants to do that like you see videos of like people flying whether it's skydiving or the little squirrel suits or kiteboarding or paragliding or whatever it, it it's one of those things that humans see and you're just like oh, i want to do that that just looks like fun and it is mm-hmm. definitely absolutely <laughs> so i would love for you to introduce yourself to our audience and how you got started with um, your focus right now, which is really talking about the flex diet, metabolism, complex physiology. How did you get started um, with this? Like probably most guys, I just started lifting probably later in life. I got 
pinned by the empty bar in high school. I was a six foot three eel shaped rake at a 156 pounds and wasn't really lean. <laughs> and I thought maybe I should do some lifting. This might be a good idea. And so I went to college the first year. I took a class on a PE class. I had to take a credit on weightlifting because I learned nothing in high school. I, I played sports. I played basketball. My knees got really bad. So I ended up playing golf my junior year just to learn how to play golf. So I never really learned how to weightlift. Our coach was a cross-country coach, and he didn't want to teach gym. So he just told us to go run every day, but never showed us technique or anything at all, which I wasn't very good at running either. So that sucked. <laughs> I got to college. I thought, oh, it's great. I'll take a whole class on it. The instructor showed up on day one and then left and did, didn't tell us anything. I was like, dang, this sucks. Like most guys, I just probably did everything wrong for at least a decade. But what I enjoyed was they had an anatomy and physiology lab when I did my undergrad. And anyone could sign up and take anatomy and physiology. So I did that. And he worked on actual cadavers. So I got new cadavers every quarter. And that was super cool because you see pictures and you see video, but to have like an actual body in front of you to, you know, trace everything. And it always, to me, being a visual learner was much better having kind of the, the 3D model of it. So I enjoyed that. And I just kept taking physiology classes for fun. I would go to kind of strength training and nutrition conferences, like literally for fun. I went to one I remember in Arizona and God, this is probably tooth. Was it earlier than that? It was like 2001, I think. And I got there early and there's a couple of trainers there. I sat in the back and I was like, hey, what do you guys do? And they're like, oh, we're trainers. I'm like, oh, cool. I'm like, did you see the one study about this or that? And they're like, no. I'm like, oh, but I'm sure you saw the other study about, you know, this biomechanics of the deadlift. And they're like, no. And they're like, who are you? Like, what are you doing here? I'm like, but you guys are trainers. Like, you read research, right? They're like, oh, hell no. We come to these conferences. We don't read research. What's wrong with you? And I realized, I'm like, oh. People don't sit around at home and read research, but I just thought it was fascinating that someone would take four, five, six years of their life and write it up and you could get access to it and read what they did. You know, even just like books, like books still to me are amazing. You know, a coach or nutritionist could spend, you know, condensed 10, 20 years of their experience into a book you can buy for like 30 to $50. That's kind of, that's, to me, that's like mind blowing technology, which makes me sound really old. <laughs> so I was just was super interested in it. I ended up taking a bunch more uh, classes. I ended up going into engineering because I didn't know what to do with anatomy and physiology at that time. So I worked in uh, biomedical engineering. I worked for a medical device company and cardiac stuff for 10 years. I uh, went back to did my master's in mechanical engineering. I actually created a uh, system for testing microwave transmitters in front of monkeys. <laughs> at the time, I couldn't get any funding for research. I went to the Center for Biomedical Engineering. And they said, hey, we have research for you, but you have to learn about heat transfer. I'm like, sure, whatever. I'll learn about heat transfer. I just need to get this degree and get done. And it was creating a computer-generated model of a monkey head in front of a big microwave transmitter. And they said it was for collision avoidance systems on cars were using microwave transmitters. It was actually sponsored by Brooks Air Force Base in Texas. And five years later, after I finished it, my advisor sent me this little picture from the newspaper that said, Military declassifies ray gun. He goes, hey, this is your research. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, it was so classified. We couldn't tell you it was classified. I'm like, yeah, I kind of wondered. I didn't think Brooks Air Force Base in Texas, who was funding to give a crap about like collision avoidance systems on cars. But what they made was a system called the active denial. 
It's this big, big microwave transmitter you put on the back of a truck and you point it at a crowd of people. And because it's in the gigahertz range, that's so super, super high frequency, the penetration depth is only like a couple millimeters. So it just lights up all the nerve endings at the top part of your skin, but doesn't penetrate low enough into the skin to cause any uh, deep tissue damage or anything like that. And so once you're in the, the beam, it hurts like you're being burnt by a light bulb, but there's no residual effect. And so you automatically move out of the way. So after 9-11, everybody wanted it for a non-lethal crowd dispersion, but hasn't really been used a whole lot. You can look it up. You can find information on it. I did a presentation on metabolic flexibility for DARPA, which is the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, the group that created GPS, cell phones, a bunch of advanced technology. And it so happened, one of the guys there was one of the drivers of the machine in the military when he was in, like five years after the fact. And I asked him, I said, you know, like what happens? Like, what do you, why is the military not using this? <laughs> it's like, they're not very good with non-lethal means. It's like, oh, okay. And I said, well, why isn't like, you know, the, the Coast Guard and everyone else was super excited about this for crowd dispersal, but they never really used it either. And he's like, yeah, it just looks too bad if, you know, a certain police group uses ray gun on, you know, a <laughs> group of people. So I kind of got some, some bad uh, press with it. And I asked him once, I said, well, if someone is in the beam and they're they're coming at you, like what do you do at that point? He's like, oh, we shoot them. <laughs> like he's like, yeah, because they're clearly a threat. Like no one's staying in that beam for any length of time unless they're just hell bent on doing harm to you. So I was like, oh, okay. So I finished all that stuff and just kept going to conferences for fun. I went back. I started doing a PhD in biomedical engineering, and I just got tired of doing math. I I was kind of an idiot. I didn't know. When I went into engineering, how much math there was, which sounds stupid. And then when I was doing the PhD for biomedical stuff, which I never finished, I didn't realize there was also two more math requirements beyond that. So it turns out there's a whole bunch of stuff beyond like calculus four and things like that. So I dropped out of that, went over to exercise physiology. I'm like, great, never have to deal with math again. This is going to be awesome. I get to learn about exercise. I don't care what it's for. My whole backup plan was, eh, if the exercise phys thing does nutrition doesn't work, I already have a good job working in the medical device industry. I'll just, you know, stay here, do some fitness stuff for fun. So I got there and the first day, my advisor looks at everyone and he goes, all right, we got two new projects and they both involve math. One's on heart rate variability, one's on metabolic flexibility. And he looks around the table, there's only five of us. And he points at me and he's like, you math boy, whatever your name is, like, these are your projects now. It's like, oh, you're shitting me. Like I came all the way over here to start all the way over again. It took me seven years just to finish that. And now I'm like doing more math stuff again. But it turned out that it was actually really interesting. The math wasn't um, too hard on it. And so that's how I got learning about metabolic flexibility and heart rate variability, which was 14 years ago is when I started that. Um, and so at that time, like you couldn't even do uh, HRV with a phone or anything like that. We had this, you know, $20,000 of used equipment, had to bring people in the lab. And it was just kind of a, a pain in the ass. So it's been kind of cool to see the progression of technology and everything moving forward. That's really cool. Now I think I'm going to always think of you as Dr. Mike, the math boy. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's going to go back yeah. to math, but I didn't know that about your journey in education. I didn't know that it wasn't like you picked one thing. It was like, boom, that's exactly going to oh, be no. it. I love it. I'm done. Let's do it. 
Um, I love the fact that you're transparent of like, I kind of had to bounce around and figure out the thing that I actually wanted to do, but I had a backup just in case. Yeah, I would not recommend this plan to anyone, but I started college like literally two days after I turned 18 and I completed my PhD three months after I turned 38 mm -hmm. and I went full time that whole time, except for two years. So I do oh not gosh. recommend 18 years of college to anybody. <laughs> anybody uh yeah not the not the best path but and some i'm kind of glad that i did it because it you know you know if you keep working at stuff and you keep trying stuff you know eventually you know things just have a habit of working out which is good that's true yeah. that's true so with metabolic <laughs> flexibility once you started diving into that research how did you feel about it because i know you were like kind of pointed out like that one's going to be you that's your assignment but once you started getting into it um how did your feelings or perspective shift on it at first i didn't get it i had never heard of it and i was like that's kind of weird like i've been you know reading about fitness taking physiology classes for fun for a whole bunch of years and my first question then was, okay, isn't that just how everybody's body operates? So who cares? Like, that's just normal. It doesn't change. There's no difference you can make to it. So therefore, who cares? And I, I soon realized that, oh, there's huge difference in how people use carbohydrates. There's even bigger differences in how people use fat, a whole bunch of different systems and different training methods and sleep and recovery and everything else can affect uh, both ends of the system, you actually lose metabolic flexibility and there's certain disease processes like uh, diabetes, metabolic syndrome. Once I realized that, I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And I also realized that because I had a background in engineering, it was easier for me to understand um, systems from more of an engineering perspective. So in engineering, it was very common of this thing does this and then affects this and affects that. Or a lot of times how standard nutrition and exercise physiology is just taught. It's like, here's protein. Protein is good for repairing muscle. Yay. And that's it, right? <laughs> they don't talk about anything else. They don't talk about how it affects other systems. It's very kind of myopic, kind of one thing. But now we're getting a lot better with kind of more of a systems approach. And, oh, if you did this, watch out because this thing may actually change too. And it seems kind of obvious now, but back... I would say even 18 years ago, 15 years ago, it's gotten a lot better the way it's being taught now, but it was mm -hmm. much more static. And now we're getting much better at teaching it as a, a dynamic thing. Because as you know, right, if you people are like, oh, it's only 500 calories, you know, just to cut that out per day and you'll lose weight. It's like, kind of, yeah, that's true. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff you have to, you know, factor into all of that too. So yeah, it's true. But in terms of practice it's not as simple my my favorite quote in this is from uh, dr Stu phillips as uh, a protein researcher at mcmaster in canada and he was saying he's like yeah telling the average person to they can lose weight by just moving more and eating less is like telling a depressed person to have a nice day he's like it's <laughs> true it's 100 percent true but it's also the most useless information that you could probably give to someone at the same time mm -hmm. and you know i mean you know, from our industry, there are some people that are really just hell bent on it's only about calories like that, yeah. like that's the end all be all. If you're in a deficit, you should be losing weight. You're going to lose weight. If you're moving more, you're going to lose weight. And it's definitely not the case for everybody. 
Yeah, and it, it gets, I understand why it's confusing too, because at a level of physics, that, that is a true statement. Like we lock people in metabolic chambers, we measure all the food that comes in, we measure all their activity. Yeah, does that work out? 100%. But that's in a closed, like hyper-controlled environment. And humans like wander around in, you know, completely uncontrolled, like open systems. So assuming that it's going to be just that simple when you let the humans out to run around in the wild, it's, it's not. <laughs> yeah, true. Can you give us a short lesson on like uh, what metabolic flexibility is and why would someone want to be metabolically flexible? Yeah, so there's basically just three components. So metabolic flexibility on one end of a spectrum is how well can you use carbohydrates and how well can you use fat on the other end of the spectrum. So those are the two main fuel sources your body's going to use. These could come from food. They could come from your own body fat stores, glycogen stores, et cetera. And then how fast can you switch between one or the other? So the three components are how well do you use carbs? How well do you use fat? And how well can you switch back and forth between those two? So people who are metabolically inflexible, they may have a problem with the carbohydrate end, or they may have a problem with the fat end, and they're very slow to switch back and forth. So if you view it as a spectrum, like a barbell, right? So imagine you got a barbell that carbohydrates are on one end, fats are on the other end, and you've got a huge space between them. That's probably a good thing. You can go all the way to use a lot of carbs, you can go all the way to use a lot of fat. When you become more inflexible, like those two ends of the barbell get like squished together. So you have a harder time using carbohydrates, you have a harder time using fat, and you're very, very slow to switch back and forth between those two fuels. I think it makes a lot of sense. But I also understand a barbell too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think it's I think it's a really good analogy. Yeah, um, I love the barbell analogy. I stole that from Nassim Taleb. <laughs> And so when you've been doing um, research and or work with clients, I know typically you have been working with athletes to help them be more uh, metabolically flexible, correct? Yeah, athletes. And I did work with a lot of general population when I started. And when you've worked with them, do you think it's been easier with that group of people because they have a lot of the basics down, basic um, fundamentals down of like nutrition and rest and recovery and macros and micros? Do you feel like it's made it easier for those people to kind of get a hang of that concept? Um, sometimes yes, and sometimes no. So the first time I worked with, I would say, higher level athletes was... God, probably 11 years ago or so, mm -hmm. uh, a coach that I knew, he was a coach of the two fastest women for the 100 meter dash in college. Uh, he calls me up and says, Hey, you know, I'm working these two athletes. They're great, but their nutrition's horrible. Like, I want to pay you, I'll hire you, you work with them. It'll be in our both best interest. They'll run faster, recover better. I'm like, Great, this sounds like fun. So I said, Hey, just, you know, talk to the athletes. Just give me a three day diet log. Just write down everything you eat and drink for three days. And we'll go from there. And what they sent was like chicken nuggets, like McDonald's. Like, I don't think there was any real whole food, like in the, the entire thing, like two bottles of Gatorade, chronically under eating. They weren't even eating enough calories, period. And I'm looking at it and I thought it was a joke. I'm like, did he, is he like pranking me or something? Like, these are like two of the top female fastest athletes in college. And you can... You know, like with track and field, you can look up and see like the legit numbers, like, do you know if they're lying or not? And so I asked him, he's like, no, no, 
And so I started working with them like, hey, let's just have some like real protein and oh, we have to cook. And what I realized one was there's a pain in the ass because the athletes didn't care. The coach wanted me to work with them. The athletes couldn't give two shits about it anyway. And I also realized after working with a couple higher level athletes after that, the assumption I had going in is these are elite athletes. They're paid, you know, especially professionals, millions of dollars. They must care a lot about their nutrition and their health. And there are those people out there, 100%. But it's shocking how many of them get by on nutrition that's just like a floating trash bin fire. It's like, how the hell can you perform like that and eat trash, you know? And granted, it's probably gonna impact their longevity and their health and risk of injury and other things like that. Um, so that was kind of shocking to me. And then on the other end of the athletic spectrum, you have athletes that are just completely neurotic. And I get it. Like that's your living said athlete like this past year. I won't say his name, but top NFL quarterback got a concussion. His neurologist calls me. We do some nutrition stuff with him. Super nice dude. Awesome guy. But he literally has like 13 people that kind of rove around and control everything in his life. Knowing that, like I made some suggestions and then I literally had three paragraphs of you know, consider this supplement at this dose. Do not double or triple the dose thinking that it's going to be better because, you know, if one's good, four must be better, right? So it's like this huge spectrum from one end to the other. And even some high-level endurance athletes can actually be metabolically inflexible. And you're like, well, how the hell does that work? If they're a top, uh, so I've seen some data from top marathon runner, very, very fast uh, runner, and we've had him on a metabolic cart. So we had fancy equipment. We could look to see all the fuels he was using. And he literally used almost entirely carbohydrates the entire time. Even at rest, he was almost entirely using carbohydrates. And his complaint was performance-wise is, hey, I can run really good. But if I ever get any GI upset or the carbohydrates coming in don't feel so good on my stomach, my performance just goes off a cliff. I'm like, yeah, because you, you have no other fuels to use. So in his case... If, he, if we could time all of his carbohydrates and get everything working, his performance was good. Now, I would argue his health is probably going to be not so good because we know how well you can use fat as a fuel source is also a marker for health. So you end up with this huge range of individuals. Like some are actually pretty good. Some are not. Some you look at their dietary logs, and I've been able to do some like metabolic carts, some fancy testing. It's shocking. Sometimes they're fine. Um, usually athletes who have a higher level of workload, they can get by with not the best nutrition, as long as their calories are also pretty good. Um, so long story short, you kind of see a wide variety. And now I just, I just ask him questions about, Hey, give me a nutrition log. And then I'll ask them specific things, not necessarily because I want the answer, but I want to see how neurotic they are. So I have this this movement test I got from PRI, uh, Ron Horoska Posturation Institute, and it has very, very detailed instructions of how to do it. It only takes a minute and a half to do, but it's very detailed. Okay, bend over this way, put your feet this way, stop here, do this, do this. And I use it more to see on the neurotic range of people where they're at. So a good buddy of mine is a, a client now. He redid the video four times to make sure he did everything correctly. And he would stop and explain to me what he was doing to make sure that it was correct, right? Very, very neurotic, extremely successful dude though. Other people, I don't even think they watch the damn video. They're just like, eh, you know, so stuff like that I use to figure out 
how am I going to communicate with them? How is that going to be interpreted? And we can kind of move from there. Because if you have someone who's very specific and very neurotic, I might use a more specific macro-based approach. I might tell them specifically to weigh stuff out because I want their buy-in that I listen to them and I'm talking to them in their language. If it's someone who can't follow any direction at all, it's like, yeah, you see the size of your palm? Yeah, like eat a chicken breast about that big. Oh, okay, boss, I can do that. <laughs> so it's 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 tricky and you you find the widest range and you can't always tell from the outside looking in where they're going to be either. Cool, cool. While we're on that um, subject of athletes, let's talk about CWI or cold water immersion. I know yeah, yeah, sure. that's a thing you touch on a lot. Um, when I was an athlete, I know we used it. We use ice baths and such. And sometimes we do cryo now, like I'll do cryo to do muscle recovery. But I know some of the benefits that it gives athletes. Can you touch on some of the benefits that everyday people can, um, can um, how they benefit from CETA or C, uh, or cold water immersion? Sure. How I got into it was I saw some stuff from Wim Hof years ago like right when he first started and i was like huh this guy seems a little interesting um and i knew some people who were some of the original instructors and i was like hmm and before COVID happened i was lucky enough i got a 15.6 cubic freezer uh mental note if if you go to home depot and you crawl into the freezers in there to make sure you fit like you they look at you funny if they do see you so i, I would not recommend that uh, approach i may have done that um, but I got one big enough I could actually fit in and got it home, sealed everything off and then proceeded to fill it full of water and had my my poor man's cold water immersion. Again, if you do this, for God's sakes, don't get in it when it's plugged in, like be safe, all that kind of stuff. Freezers are not made for this. If any freezer people out there, because they yell at me all the time. But, you know, for $500, you, you kind of do your own. Run some ozone through it, put a filter on it, you're good to go. And when I started doing it, it was COVID, so everything was in lockdown. It wasn't going anywhere. Luckily, I have a garage that's converted into a gym many years ago. I have a bike, have a rower. So I started doing it every day. It started just 50 degrees. Started walking my temperature down. And my assumption was, you know, after two years of doing this, literally for like six days a week, my assumption was even at colder temperature, like just like exercise, it would be pretty easy. It would, it would kind of suck, but, you know, it wouldn't be so bad. And the thing that surprised me was, even to this day, Every day before I would get in there, this probably happened to you too. There's still that hesitation of, God, this is gonna suck. Why am I doing this? What this is stupid. You know, like there was there's always that hesitation there, and then you can kind of override it. So you have like the the primitive kind of lizard part of your brain that's like, no, you could die if you do this, you're dumb. Then you have the newer part of your brain, the professor prefrontal cortex, that's like, oh, but think of how good you're gonna feel after your recovery is gonna be better, and you kind of talk yourself into the benefits and you kind of go through and do it. So I think for most people, the psychological aspect, I think is much higher than even the, the physical portion, which I'll touch on next, that decision of I'm going to do the hard thing and I'm going to do it again, I believe transfers to other parts of your life, right? Whether it's, you know, saying no to birthday cake, just, you know, going to do your exercise, doing a walk when you're tired, going to bed early, whatever. I do think those habits probably do transfer. In terms of recovery, I always felt really good after. Um, we do see like huge increases in dopamine, huge increases in epinephrine. So that was good. 
recovery wise, it was mixed. I, I did see a trend kind of a little bit better HRV, you know, over time, as long as I didn't uh, push it really hard. So if I stayed in really cold and got out to the point where I'm almost like shivering, and I did that for a couple of days in a row, I would see that that was, you know, definitely more stressful. I think if you kind of stay under that threshold, you're pretty good. In terms of the research, it's kind of split, you know, for performance, I would say probably beneficial. Um, there's some study on mixed martial arts athletes or some study on soccer players. Again, that gets into the weeds of what part of performance are you looking at? Like rate of force development, blah, 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 a bunch of other stuff. For muscle hypertrophy, there's some studies showing that it will acutely decrease uh, muscle protein synthesis. So how well you can take those amino acids and like shove them into muscle tissue to make it a little bit bigger and stronger. Again, those are all pretty much acute studies now. They have a few studies that have run out for, I think, eight to 12 weeks. Some of them did show a little bit less muscle loss. A new one that Greg Hoff did didn't really show any muscle loss. So it's a little bit of a toss-up. I would say if your goal is to be you know, professional bodybuilder and you're trying to maximize every single ounce of muscle growth you can, doing it immediately after training, probably not the best idea. Outside of that, do it whenever you want. I tend to do a shorter cardiovascular session in the morning and then do my cold water immersion. There's some data showing it may benefit aerobic adaptations. That data is kind of split. That's uh, mostly what they call molecular stuff from a thing called PGC1-alpha, which regulates aerobic metabolism. So it might help with that, but I know it's not going to really have a negative effect. Um, so again, like, but like what you said with the sport teams, like I've been able to talk to a lot of, you know, high level coaches and yeah, some colleges you go to, they just show you all the fancy equipment because it's, I've had, you know, coaches there flat out tell me it's a recruitment tool. Like we're showing you, we've got all the cool shit. Like you need to come here, man, but they never used any of it. But a lot of the places they did, you know, a lot of places like cold water immersion, contrast therapy, that's been used for for decades and a lot of high level athletes are good at measuring stuff too they're not gonna do stuff that doesn't show any effect uh day in and day out if you look at other cultures maybe looking at you know russian culture wherever you can go if you travel around the world you can almost find some type of, of bathhouse and they almost always have some type of hot some type of cold some type of you know transitioning between the two so i think it it definitely can be beneficial but I think for most people, the psychological aspect of I want, I'm going to do this hard thing for a few minutes today is probably like the main benefit from it. Great, great. So million dollar question. Are you uh -oh. still doing your CWI in the deep freezer? Uh, I do when I'm home. Uh, I'm down in South Padre right now. So I run in the ocean once in a while, which gets even weirder looks from people. And the ocean here is it's, it's not even that cold. It's like 65, <clears throat> maybe 70 degrees. I didn't know um, you did ocean runs. <laughs> yeah, it's it's colder today. It's 61. It was 87 the other day. Uh, people are it's 61 degrees and people are wandering around in winter coats. Uh, last year I was down here. I you know did my little run on the beach in the morning, did some meditation, run in the ocean, come back out. And this guy comes out and he's like, hey, are you pledging a fraternity down here? And I'm like, what? Like, I don't I, I'm sure he didn't see all the gray hair I have. And I, I said, what are you talking about? I don't have a beer can in my hand. He's like, no, man, you're out running in the ocean. Did they have you do that for pledge week? I'm like, no, I just think it, it feels good. He's like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you definitely get some, some weird looks. Uh, most of the time when I'm home, I do do it. I have noticed that when I travel a fair amount and I come back and I haven't done it for a couple of weeks, 
man, like all those adaptations, they, they feel like they go away super fast. Like mm -hmm. the first time I was after COVID, we got out, we got released. Ha ha. Yay. Went on a kiteboarding trip, came back four weeks later, got in at the same temperature I left and it was horrible. And so it, it feels like even within a couple of weeks, those adaptations you had, they just feel like they go away. So I do confess that sometimes when I go home and I've only got three days before I travel again, I, I tend to skip it. But most times when I'm at home, probably three to four days a week, I still do it. Have you done any testing with cold water immersion or even cold water or sorry, cold temperature exposure like cryo um, with metabolic flexibility or like the rate of someone's metabolism? Yeah. So there's some super interesting studies. So the other reason I got into it was, you know, for metabolic flexibility, I'm like, Hey, the, the story makes sense. Right. So there was this, this story, I don't know if it's true or not about, you know, Michael Phelps eating 10,000 calories per day. From what I heard when I talked to his actual trainer who worked there, a guy who was like in the facility said, yeah, you know, a couple of days he did, but that wasn't his norm every single day, but he did eat a lot of calories. And so his caloric intake was very high. Granted, he's swimming a lot. He's in the pool all day. But even in a heated pool, that difference in temperature, it's it's relatively high. And we know humans are what they call homeotherms. We have to keep 98.6 degrees. It's actually 97.7. And so we have to expend a lot of calories in order to keep our body core temperature with, within literally a few degrees. So I'm like, okay, so it would make sense that if you're in colder water, you're going to burn more calories in order to just displace it as heat. And so I started looking at some of the, the old research. There's a lot of old military research for uh, hypothermia. And they've done some crazy studies on this. I talked to at the Real Coaches event, Dr. Dwayne Jackson. It turns out he actually was an assistant to some of that original research. And he confirmed that, yep, they did crazy stuff like had metabolic hearts out in boats with, you know, rectal probe temps and all sorts of stuff. And I asked him, I said, so I've read almost all the literature on that I can find. It doesn't seem like you can see significant fat loss unless you're just teeth chattering, like shivering, just miserable. He's like, yeah, that's probably true. Um, older studies looked at putting people in literally what looked like an industrial freezer, just in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt. You had to be in there for almost like 45 minutes at, I think it was like 37 degrees or something. Um, so I think you can see some fat loss. The theory is that it'll increase your body's use of fat as fuel. That is true to some degree. There's earlier studies showing that if you put people in cold water, their body will use more fat as a fuel. Once they start shivering, it actually changes and it'll actually acutely use more carbohydrates because shivering is a high intensity relaxation muscle contraction. But the amount of time you have to do it to see significant effects, it, you're just really miserable. And if you go a little bit too aggressive, you can have what they call an after effect or aftershock when you get out. That doesn't feel good. You can be cold for long periods of time. It is a significant stressor. So I've looked at heart rate variability a lot on it. The other fascinating component, though, is um, I've done experiments where just getting in 43 degrees for three to five minutes. I'd measure my blood glucose before I got in uh, a couple of times was like 86. And I've done this one, two, three, like three times now after even just a few minutes, it, it'll plummet a lot of times into the upper fifties or low sixties, which is ridiculously low. 
the weird part was I, I didn't feel hypoglycemic. I didn't feel weird at all. Um, there's some newer research showing that cold water immersion has different effects on metabolism for glucose use also. And I think we'll find out in the future that it might be useful also for carbohydrate use and potentially uh, fat use. So I do think for metabolic health, uh, there's probably something there. Uh, Suzanne Silverberg did some very interesting stuff on winter swimmers, like people in northern Scandinavian countries who do a lot of swimming in the winter. Um, did looked at a whole bunch of metabolic markers and showed that they seem to be better than another population. I think there's probably some benefit from a metabolic standpoint, but in terms of pure fat loss, I was sadly kind of disappointed because I, it's one of those things where I, I just wanted it to be true, right? It's like, okay, if you can tell me that sitting in this damn freezer for 10 minutes a day, even if it's miserable, I'm going to start losing like one to two pounds a week without doing anything else. Like, dude, I I'm a hundred percent like all in and yeah. Sad to say it's not. <laughs> yeah. When they sell cryo packages, it's one of the things that are like on the list um, of like promotes, you know, higher metabolic rate, promotes fat loss. And then, you know, all the other things, circulation, recovery and blah, blah, blah. Um, but I'm glad that you definitely touched on that because I know there are people that are like, I'm going every single day to help with my fat loss. And um, you would need a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. Especially with the cryo that is the cold air. Mm -hmm. So the cold air probably even has less metabolic effect because you, you just can't get the, the tissue below it cold enough because the mm -hmm. air is so friggin' cold. And if you've ever done it, I, I don't find it. It's as hard as a cold water immersion. It's a little bit easier. You do still get like the norepinephrine, the dopamine bump from it. So you do feel pretty good. There's some interesting data that it may help with inflammation, cold water immersion may or may not, probably not in healthy people, but other pathologies it might. So yeah, I'd say even with the cryo using the air, you probably have less of a, a chance of seeing much difference in uh, fat loss. And the last part on metabolism, yes, if you're in cold water long enough, do you see an increase in metabolism? Yes, you do. Does it mean anything though? No, I don't, I don't think so, unfortunately. <laughs> That's good to know. So aside yeah. from trying to use cryo or cold water immersion to become more metabolically flexible, um, where would people be able to start um, if they were on that path of wanting to try to increase their metabolic flexibility? What would be some tips or recommendations? Yeah, on the carbohydrate end, the biggest thing there is just, it sounds boring, eh, old school muscle movement. Like go for a walk, do some cardio, pick up some heavy ass weights, like just do those things, right? Because that is, you know, especially the higher intensity stuff is going to train your body to use carbohydrates better. There's also a component that's not talked about much called non-insulated, non-insulin mediated movement, or basically pulling glucose out of the bloodstream. So if you just contract muscle tissue, even if you're fasted, insulin's not a factor, your muscle tissue can pull glucose directly out of the bloodstream. It doesn't always need insulin to be present. Um, so there's what they call non-insulin mediated effects. Go for a walk, like do some light movement. I'm a big fan of, hey, like especially fitness people, why don't you have a hobby other than lifting stuff? Yes, by all means, I love lifting too. It's great. You should do it 100%. But maybe you should learn to, to surf, go play tennis, hell, even play pickleball. I don't care. Do something else, right? 
just to get some more movement in a fun capacity. Um, so movement is probably the best thing for carbohydrates. Sleep, you could argue, does help both carbohydrate and fat use. There's some super interesting studies from University of Chicago many years ago where they took average college people, super healthy people, and they normally had them sleep for eight hours a day. They sleep deprived them by cutting that in half, I believe, for five days. So they only slept four hours a night. And they were literally like borderline type 2 diabetics by the end of that fifth day, which is crazy because these were metabolically healthy college students. Uh, but again, they completely slashed their sleep by 50% for, you know, I think it was five days in a row. Once they allowed them to sleep, everything, you know, went back to normal. It wasn't like it was a permanent state. Um, there's another study where they put people in a metabolic chamber. So they measured how much fat and carbohydrates they use at, at night during sleep. And they had one arm of the study where they fractured their sleep, meaning they had to hit this little alarm once every hour to say, oh, okay, I was awake, I hit the alarm, go back to bed. Most of the time, they didn't remember how many times they hit the alarm, but they were awake and they went back to bed. In that group where they fractured their sleep, they used about 50% less fat as a fuel compared to the group that just let them sleep the entire night. So this is sleep has some very interesting effects on uh, both ends of the spectrum. And then on fat, I would say the top thing is either increasing your aerobic capacity. So I tell clients like, if you have like a big, you know, sports car that has a V12 engine, you're just going to use a lot of fuel going to the grocery store, right? But you also have a lot more performance you can get out of it. If I had, I don't know if you guys, you guys remember like the three cylinder Yugos? Like no one remembers this little car anymore. It was like a little complacent, you know, squirrel on a roller skate. It was a horrible thing. It was like a lawnmower engine than someone stuck in a car right? It's very fuel efficient, but to get any performance out of it, you have to just, you know, redline the crap out of it. So if you have a, a low aerobic capacity, you're redlining your system a lot more often, and you're still not burning as much fuel. You just don't have the engine size. So getting a bigger engine is going to pay off on both sides of that. And the last part would be, you know, some period of fasting. You know, it is true that insulin does help select different fuels. So when you fast, insulin does go down. And when it does that, it does push your body to use more fat as a fuel. And because you haven't eaten anything, the source of fat is, you know, potentially mostly, you know, adipose and stored uh, body fat. So I do like fasting for that purpose. Again, if you look at the literature, a lot of people send me interesting emails about, oh, there's no difference in this group versus fasting in the other group. Yeah, for weight loss. Probably not much difference. Again, do calories matter? Absolutely. Is fasting one way of cutting out calories? Yes. Are there a huge ton of benefits we can point to in research right now of fasting versus lower calories? Not necessarily. But what I found was if it's progressive, it was surprisingly faster and easier than what I thought. If you've ever tried to do, like, let's say your daily intake is 2,500 calories and your coach says, okay, for just this one day, we want you to really focus on protein. We want you to only eat like 800 calories for that day. That's going to put you in a more aggressive deficit and it'll bring you back up to your normal calories the next day. Like I always find those days, whether people should do this or not, but I find once I start eating, I just want to eat more. It was very hard for me and for clients to keep my calories like super, super low for that day, as opposed to paradoxically not eating for a period of time from a compliance standpoint was easier, which is not what I would have expected. So if we work up to a, you know, 17 hour fast, only one day per week, 
over time, it was relatively easy for clients um, to do that, have a normal meal, go back to what you were doing before. So I found from a compliance standpoint, it was much easier than I thought it was going to be. I 100% agree. I also, I'm not going to recommend it either, but I fasted like for days at a time before. And like you said, if as long as you don't eat, it's, it's easy. But once you start, it's just kind of, you know, it, it yeah. gets kind of, you're like, okay, now I'm ready to eat. But let's jump from one extreme to the next. Yeah. So we talked about CWI. Let's talk about the sauna. Like, yes. Um, a lot of us get in the sauna after workouts and we're looking for benefits to our muscles, to our joints and such. But there's also been talk about it benefiting metabolism. Is that true? And if so, like how much does it? In terms of metabolic benefits of sauna, there's some, but again, it's not super huge. Now, the mm -hmm. caveat with that is compared to what? right compared to low intensity exercise walking etc yes you are going to burn more calories being in a sauna because you do have to regulate for heat that is going to cost you some calories in order to do that again is it something that i've seen in clients or literature is extremely significant eh, not not really um, but i do like sauna because there's a fair amount of benefits from it like there's a lot of finished studies showing mortality benefits lifespan benefits um, there's some studies showing cardiovascular output benefits, the caveat being in untrained individuals. And some of that may be from heat regulation or something else that's called an increase in plasma volume. So if you expose yourself to heat, a lot of times you literally have more kind of blood volume, what they call plasma volume circulating. That's also an adaptation from aerobic training about the first couple of weeks. So that big bump people will see in aerobic training after a couple of weeks it's usually your body just being able to distribute uh, red blood cells better via more volume in your system. Um, I was hoping that sauna would augment uh, aerobic adaptations more. Not much data on it. It might. So if you're really trying to get more aerobic gains, could you do sauna? It may benefit. The research on that's kind of split. Um, in general, I do like it for recovery. So for a lot of clients, even general population, I'm like, hey, if you have access to a sauna at your gym and you're done training, yeah, just go in for 5, 10, 15 minutes, do some breath work, do some, you know, long exhales, like get back to a little bit more relaxed parasympathetic state. And most people report that they, you know, feel a lot better. Um, if people have access to it at home, I usually have them do it as part of their kind of nighttime ritual. Like, yeah, go in for 10, 15, 20 minutes, make sure you stay hydrated, do some relaxing breathing. And then when you come out, there's a big difference in temperature. So one of the things that's going to drive sleep is you need a, a change in temperature. Your body temp has to actually drop a little bit. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of benefits to it. Last component, a big benefit of stressing kind of your, your hormesis or your systems that have to stay in place, what it's called the hormetic stressor. Temperature is one of them, right? So whether it's cold or whether it's hot, your core temperature can't oscillate more than a couple degrees. But if you look at general populations forward in time, they have a really hard time regulating temperature with age. Those systems can be adapted and you lose those adaptations as you get older. Right? Look at kids who run around in hot environments, they run around in the snow, ah, they don't care that much. My grandma, when she was alive, she lived to 102. We'd visit her in the nursing home and it was freaking like 77 degrees in these places. It's always like 100 degrees in there. 
And she has like this quilt on because she's so cold, she can't regulate her own temperature anymore. So I do think targeting them from a health perspective, making sure you don't lose some of those adaptations, I think is useful. Doesn't mean you need to do it all the time, but it's it's one of those stressors that we've removed from our life. And I mean, I'm sitting down here in South Padre and air conditioning, and I love my air conditioning, but I think being exposed to temp extremes is useful and sauna and cold water immersion is just kind of two ways on each end that you can do that also. Absolutely. Now, like you stated earlier, um, you weren't a great runner. I don't love cardio. So <laughs> no one really does. At <laughs> like, I don't know any meatheads that love cardio. And, like, uh, I don't love it. I did my rower session today. And if I had a choice, I, I would have skipped it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's my next question. So if I get in the sauna and I bust out some air squats, and I do some core work. Can I skip the can I skip the treadmill? Can I skip the stairmaster and be just as effective? Unfortunately, probably not. Um again, <laughs> if you tried. did enough, if you did enough work, maybe, right? And you've seen the pictures of Laird Hamilton like wheeling his echo bike into the sauna because he's probably not even he's a cyborg. I don't think he's human. Um, but there is something to do where I, I like the idea of combining stuff. Right. So for the longest time, I never heated my garage. I still don't have an air conditioner in there in the summer. And so I liked having the temp changes, even though the first couple of weeks where it get warm would would just suck. So it's like, yeah, it's, you know, 95 degrees out here and it's humid. I'm going to force myself to adapt to the heat and I'm still going to exercise. So I kind of get a, a, a two for one at that point. But I do think there is something where you can you know go a little bit more in the winter. You know, I'll do stuff outside. Like I was 37 degrees the other day and I just took the rower and set it in the, the driveway and just did my rowing outside in the cold. So I do think you can kind of combine some of the stuff together. They don't always necessarily have to be separate. Yeah, I think you're inspiring me to get back on a little bit of extra cardio for just, you know, heart health, metabolic health, and not so much for, you know, fat loss and weight loss. But I know I need to do more for sure. Yeah. And an easy tip is you can do your own VO2 max test, right? If you're mm -hmm. a runner, do what's called a 12 minute Cooper run test, find a flat space, run as far as you can in exactly 12 minutes, type in 12 minute Cooper run test, VO2 max online. Um, or for more of the people I work with, we use the concept to rower, the warm up, rest completely, set it for 2000 meters. It's called the 2K. Go as hard as you can for those 2000 meters. And same thing, go to the concept to website, plug in your time. And it'll give you kind of a rough VO2 max compared to a population of where you're at. So I do that all the time with clients. And it, it's amazing. Like some of them, you know, a good buddy of mine, Ryan, we were just at his wedding. We we're down in Costa Rica. My buddy, Dr. Ben House was placed. A big lifter, you know, competes in natural bodybuilding. Just a huge dude. Doesn't really do any cardio, even for like fat loss stuff. Doesn't really do any. So we stuck him on the rower one day. My buddy Ben's like, here's this little pace boat. Try to just follow that the whole time. And Ryan's like super motivated by stuff like that. He's like, okay. Uh, I thought he was going to die of a heart attack. Like, I'm like, oh my God, this dude's dead. He like passes out on the floor for, you know, like 10 minutes. But son of a bitch, like he rode like a sub seven, which to me, like for someone who doesn't train is crazy. Like I'm not even at that. And I trained for it. Like his VO2 max was in like the low fifties. Like shit. Like, oh, he probably doesn't need to do a lot of cardio. Where <laughs> I've had other people where... We ran the equation and they were technically negative, which can't happen, right? They were so poor, they like broke the end of the other spectrum. So like they definitely needed some work. Um, so I just have people start there and that gives you an idea of 
you know, how much do I need to do? How much do I really need to prioritize it? Some people, yeah, probably not a lot. Other people, yeah, probably a little bit more. Well, I'm going to hold us to it to do it. And then we're going to report back to you. Yeah, definitely do that. He's smiling and laughing. Nobody else can see him. Let's but go. If I say it live, then I have to report back. But I am nervous of what I'm going to find. But I started my journey losing weight with mostly cardio, you know, aerobic mm -hmm. work. It's so different for me now. But just you saying Maybe that's something you should do at least for, you know, the fun, the experiment. You know how we are. We just like to do stuff to yeah. find out what the date is going to be. We're going to do it. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Let me know how it is. Um, I've had places, you know, I've been my place where we've had people come in for a weekend and we, you know, I'm a weirdo. So I have like a full metabolic heart and I've got, you know, sensors. We can look at muscle oxygen use and we stick them on the rower and have them do two Ks. And yeah, they don't, they don't really enjoy it. We had a, the neighbor didn't know we were doing it once. <laughs> she she texts my wife. She's like, I think there's some blonde chick ran out of your garage. I think she might be throwing up in my flower bed. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was pretty fun. <laughs> Definitely wow. a bit much. Well, yeah. I have one more question before yeah. you, before we get off today. And it's made me realize I have a thousand more things to ask you. So we'll probably have you back on and talk about. Cool heart rate variability, just like in sure. itself. Um, but you wrote a post and I thought it was really cool because I know we really have the same philosophy on this. But um, what you wrote in this post, the quote was, embrace the complexity required and drop the simple story of macro extremism in 2023. And yeah. I want you to explain that just a little bit more to people that heard you say things about like, on one end, utilizing carbs and one end, utilizing fats and also talking about like the theory of um, employing days where you're completely fasting. Um, but can you touch on that a little bit as we end our podcast today? Sure. I mean, as you guys know, because you've been in the fitness field for a long time, the way to sell a diet book is to just promise one thing and then demonize everything else. Right. So, oh, it's keto. So fat is great. Eat bacon, stick butter in your coffee screw vegetables, all these other carbohydrates are evil, they'll kill you, right? Or just do carnivore, only eat meat, the vegetables are out to kill you, they're going to get you now too. It, it, that's just kind of, uh, unfortunately, the way it is. But to me, you, you only need to get as extreme as needed, and only usually for an extreme reason. So for me, like, do I have some clients that do carnivore? Yes. But we're using it more as an elimination diet because everything else they're eating keeps, you know, I'm getting inflamed, GI upset, they got a whole bunch of other issues. So by virtue, we have to kind of remove things. We just sort of ended up at carnivore. We didn't have people come in and be like, bro, carnivore day one or, you know, keto day one. And again, there's a time and a place for those things. I mean, I did a whole program for the Kerrigan Institute on the use of ketones in a ketogenic diet, potentially post-concussion and traumatic brain injury. There's some really fascinating data in that area for that disease or that pathology. But that doesn't mean everybody needs to go do keto today. Like it can work for some people, but strength and power can also be down. And then my little question I ask people is like, hey, what's your favorite foods? If they're like, you know, popcorn, pasta and English muffins, like keto is going to suck for you, man. Like you, your life's going to be a living hell. If it's like, oh, dude, I put butter on everything and bacon. Okay, yeah, keto might be all right for you. Like you might be okay. Um, so to me, it you know, 
more, I hate to use the word well-rounded moderation type thing, but your body is designed to use carbohydrates. It is designed to use fat. So there's no reason that you need to get like hyper extreme about it for performance or body comp. And, you know, I'm biased. So I would say metabolic flexibility, you can get better body composition, still increase your performance, and you can do it while actually getting healthier. You know, because a lot of, you know, I've heard cocaine works well for fat loss, but I would never recommend it to anyone, <laughs> right? It's probably not so good for your health and illegal and all sorts of other stuff. So you can do crazy things that could maybe help performance or help fat loss, but it's going to cost you kind of your health. And the reality is you, you just, for 99% of the population, they just don't need to get that extreme. It's like, yes, if you're competing in a show and you're going to stand on stage in a banana hammock in front of everybody at, you know, 4% body fat, yeah, you might have to do some extreme things to get there. And again, that's going to be a temporary state for literally a couple days, right? But for most people, you don't need to get that extreme. And the more extreme you get, the harder it is when we release you into the wild and you like show up at like social events and try to have a life. And, you know, most people don't want to live out of Tupperware the rest of their life, right? Do, do you need to put time and effort in? Yes. Do you probably need to bring some meals somewhere? Yes. Do you need to do those things? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean once you get to your goal, if you did it in an intelligent manner, you have to do all of those things like 100% the rest of your life. You know, to me, like the question most people want to know is, okay, how can I look good, perform well, keep my health, and honestly, eat as shitty as possible? <laughs> I mean, that's usually what they want to do. And, you know, obviously, there's some give and take there, there's genetics, there's other things. But expecting everyone just to eat, you know, soggy chicken breast and broccoli or do an extreme approach is the only way. And most of the time, what you don't see is the people who did it for six months and then just went... <laughs> completely fell off the wagon and were face down in birthday cakes for three days. Right. And then they feel bad. And then like, Oh my God, this wasn't the right approach. And then they're off doing some other extreme approach. And then unfortunately that does work for a period of time. So they end up with this psychology of, I don't know, it keto was working for a while and now it doesn't work. I'll just keto harder. That's gotta be the solution to it. And that's never unfortunately going to end well. Um, and the reality is you don't, you don't need to be that extreme. Your body doesn't work that way. The hard part is that's what everybody is telling you. And it it's harder when you do something like keto, which I'm ripping on right now, it, it does work for a short period of time. And you can find success stories of people where it did work for them. That's the complexity of physiology. A lot of things work, but again, it's, you know, what works for you and something that can be sustainable that can eventually become more of a lifestyle. And does that work in, you know, some of your other social environments and what you want to do with your life too? So you got to make sure that you take into mind that cost also. I agree 2000%. Like you explained it so perfectly, <laughs> so perfectly. And I think people just get caught up in the marketing, how it's helping Julie, how it's helping Brian. And um, they start, you know, they listen to people demonizing or marketing campaigns, demonizing one or the other versus like the long-term game and then what actually works for you. Um, I think that was like a perfect sum up of, of that. So yeah. before we get off of here today, um, where can people find you, your Instagram handles, your website, and then also for coaches who listen to our podcast, um, how can they get in touch with you on your flex diet certification? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So the main place is the website, which is MikeTNelson.com. Most of the information I put out is through the newsletter. So you can uh, hop on the newsletter there. We'll give you some free gifts. 
And you can hit reply once you're on the newsletter. Tell me you heard me on this podcast and we'll send you another cool free gift. Uh, the Flex Diet Cert is at flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. Uh, opens again June 5th through the 12th. And then Instagram is uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson. So this is D-R-M-I-K-E-T-N-E-L-S-O-N. And then I also have a podcast, which you've been on, which was great, on the Flex Diet podcast. Cool. Perfect. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you guys for having me on here. And it was so awesome to meet both of you in in Vegas. I really appreciate all the great questions today. That was fun. Definitely, definitely. It's been great chopping it up with you, Dr. Mike. Uh, We appreciate you being here. We appreciate all you guys for listening today. Please make sure you subscribe, like, and share. uh, Download as well. And in the meantime, get healthy and stay wealthy. And we'll holler at you guys later. Thanks for listening to our podcast today. Make sure you like, share, and tag us on Instagram. Also, subscribe to our channel so you don't miss future episodes. In the meantime, be healthy and get welcome.